Hey guys, good to see you. It's important as we work our way through these books, and we're focusing so much on individual words and thoughts and things, it's easy to kind of get lost in the forest, you might say, and can't see the forest from the trees anymore. So it's important to kind of stop and take a few steps back, give the big context, the big picture, and then uh, start moving forward again. Now, as we've already pointed out in the beginning of his epistle, Peter talked about uh, how that once we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we were born again of the Spirit. And uh, to uh, pull a phrase in from Paul, uh, we are now new creations in Christ. And guys, this isn't theoretical. It's actual and practical, and therefore should have practical application in the life of every Christian. Jesus called this practical outworking of the new birth in a Christian's life fruit. Fruit. He even went as far as to say that this was the only way we could know for sure that a person had received him as Lord and Savior and experienced the new birth. Turn to Matthew 7. Jesus said in Matthew 7, starting with verse 16, he said, you will know them by their fruits. Now, the context is false teachers, but it's bigger than that, okay? He said, Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, and a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. And the idea is that a good tree is somebody that is connected to Christ, saved. And of course, that vital union allows the Holy Spirit to flow from the Lord Jesus Christ into our lives and bear fruit, good fruit. Now, Paul, no doubt, picking up on the words of our Lord said in Romans 6, verses 20 to 22, he said, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? So before you got saved, you lived this profligate life and you were looking back, you're ashamed now. But what spiritual fruit did you have back then? You didn't have any good going on. There was no good fruit happening. You were unbelievers. He said, uh, for the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin, having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. Now be careful. Paul's not saying that the fruit, good works, saves us. He's just simply saying that fruit in a Christian's life, good fruit, good works, okay? The things that you used to like to do, uh, think back a minute to when before you, to before you got saved, and what did you like to do back in those days? Well, we all know what we like to do, and it wasn't godly, okay? But now, as Christians, we have fruit coming forth from our lives, I mean, we have new attitudes, new desires. We're here on a Wednesday night studying the Bible. You didn't want to do that before you got saved, right? You want to tell people about Jesus. You want to walk in the Spirit and, and, and bear the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit doesn't save us. It just testifies that we are connected to Christ. We are saved. The Holy Spirit is flowing through us. Uh, how do I know that? Because there's fruit. This is the mark of a true believer. The mark of a true believer. Now, Peter took a little different approach. He likened the old life, not to bad fruit, but to old, filthy clothes. And the new life, not to good fruit, but to a person putting on new, clean, and undefiled clothes. He said in chapter 2, verse 1, uh, therefore laying aside, and as we have said, that's a term in the Greek that was often used of stripping off soiled or filthy garments. And he goes on. He talks about stripping off the old life, the old lifestyle, the old conduct, he said, therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. And we, we already touched on that, okay? But he's talking about putting off like a filthy garment the old lifestyle, putting on the new lifestyle in Christ, and so on. Now, Paul also had this in mind when he said, and let me have you turn to this, Ephesians 4. And we're laying some important groundwork, guys, so don't lose me here, okay? But Paul also had this in mind, talking about the removing of the filthy garments of the old life, putting on the new garments of the life of the Spirit. He said in Ephesians 4, verse 17, he said, This I say, therefore, 
and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles. When he says Gentiles, he means unbelievers. As the rest of the unbelievers walk, verse 19, who being past feeling, in other words, their conscience has been seared. Uh, the conscience, uh, somebody just asked me this Sunday, uh, our conscience is, God has written his laws in our hearts. And then he has given us a conscience which which sounds the alarm when we violate something God has said. And what is the alarm? It's guilt. It's guilt. Uh, but God has put a conscience in every one of us, the guardian of the laws that he has put into our hearts. And yet you can turn it off. You can, you can ignore it so much and justify sin so much that you short circuit or switch your conscience off. So therefore, at that point, you can do all kinds of horrible things and not even feel uh, any guilt at all. But he's talking about those unbelievers who, being past feeling, uh, past the conviction of God, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness, but you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off, sounds like Peter now, right? That you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt, according to the deceitful lusts, verse 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, when Paul talks about putting off, or in other words, stripping away the old man, he isn't talking about the old nature. Now, a lot of people will disagree with me, but from my studies, and a lot of commentators and, and others, when they teach on Paul's writings, and he talks about the old man, they automatically assume he's talking about the old fallen nature. I don't believe that's what he's talking about. I'll show you what I mean in a moment. The old nature, which we inherited from Adam, that fallen nature, uh, won't be stripped from us until we receive our glorified bodies. 1 John 3, 2, and we'll actually uh, jump over to that in a minute. But the old nature that we inherited from Adam won't be stripped from us. You're not, you can't put it off. It won't be stripped from us until we receive our glorified bodies. Furthermore, Paul says that the old man, listen, grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Guys, the old man can't be a reference to our fallen nature because our fallen nature doesn't grow corrupt. It already is totally corrupt. Remember what Paul said in Romans 7, 18? He said, for I know that in me that is in my flesh, talking about the fallen nature, I know that in me, in my fallen nature, listen, nothing good dwells. It's not growing corrupt, the old fallen nature. It is already totally corrupt. Total depravity is the idea. In Ephesians 4, Paul isn't talking about the old nature itself. The old man, I believe, is a reference to the way we lived before we got saved, the old lifestyle uh, that our fallen nature coerced us to live pre-Christ in our B.C. days. As Paul put it in Ephesians 4.22, that you put off concerning, listen, your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust. Listen, the longer a person lives under the dominion of their fallen nature, the more corrupt their behavior becomes. We had a lady in the church years ago, was a strong believer, got saved after she got married, and her husband was a total unbeliever. Uh, he was an alcoholic, and he was very much into pornography. And over the course of years that she had come to our church, we had been praying for him, but he kept getting worse and worse and worse. He got so depraved, I can't even begin to tell you how depraved he became. Because the more you let your sin nature dominate... It's going to affect the way you live. And you're going to grow more and more corrupt, as Paul put it, according to the deceitful lusts. Deceitful lusts. The idea that lusting after things is going to make you happy. Whatever it might be. Whether it's money, lusting after you know, people, or whatever it might be. Uh, the devil uses all kinds of things to deceive us. That if we could only have that, or attain that, or do something, that you know, success or whatever... Uh, we're going to be happy. We're going to be satisfied. Some people spend their entire lives running around looking for happiness in all the wrong places. Uh, he, Paul talked about the deceitfulness of riches. Uh, 
There are people that live that work, you know, 18, well, 16, 18 hours a day, uh, making more and more money. They ha they're billionaires, sometimes even billionaires, and yet they still work all those hours. Why? Because they always believe that a little more, uh, with just a little more, I'll be happy. Because money doesn't do it. Money, you can't find real happiness no matter how much money you have. But that's where the new birth comes in. So, so you know, before we knew Christ, we were under the dominion of our fallen nature. Of course, the fallen nature coerced us, you know, uh, to do things that we look back on and we're ashamed about now. And the longer we lived under the old nature, the worse we were getting, basically. But that's where the new birth comes in, guys. This is what really Peter's getting at, okay? Once we're born again, we have a new nature. The nature of God, Peter says in 2 Peter 1.4. And now the battle between the old nature and the new nature begins. This war, guys, takes place in every child of God and is a battle, listen, is a battle for which nature is going to dominate or control our lives, our behavior, our lifestyle. See, when it was just the old nature, when we were not Christians, we only had one nature, the fallen nature. And we all lived according to its lusts and its desires. Now we have a new nature. The nature of God is also within us. That's what it means to be born again. And now we have these two natures warring with each other. We'll talk about this more in a moment, okay? But in Ephesians 4, verse 23, Paul gives us the way by which we can strip away the old life with all of its sinful and corrupt practices and put on the new man, which means a life of holiness and purity. He tells us, in Ephesians 4, 23, he said, Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. He talks like this in numerous places in his epistles. I'll just read you a couple. You don't have to turn there. Colossians 3, 10. We're saved, he said. And now we have put on the new man, listen, who is renewed in knowledge. Keep hold of that, okay? He said in Ephesians 4.23, that the way we put off the old man and put on the new, the new lifestyle, the new life of holiness in Christ, is to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. He says in Colossians 3.10, that we have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge, according to the image of him who created him. Romans 12.1 and 2, Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice, holy, right, uh, and so on. Uh, and verse 2 says, and don't be conformed to this world. And I always interject this because I, I believe this is what Paul has in mind. Don't be conformed any longer to this world's way of thinking. Why do I feel Paul is really alluding to that? Because he goes on to say, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And we've talked about this many times. And that before we got saved, all the years before we got saved, the devil was brainwashing us. We didn't realize it. We were, you know watching the programs, listening to the music, um, and all of this stuff basically was the devil's attempt to indoctrinate us in his way of thinking. And what was that? You know, rebellion, uh, you know, uh, indulging our flesh, uh, just living for ourselves, uh, so on and so forth. It's all about us. Uh, Satan is the king of trying to get us to focus on ourselves. Jesus, just the opposite. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. The ways of the devil and the ways of God are diametrically opposed. We know that, okay? But before we got saved for all those years, we were brainwashed by the devil to think the way he wanted us to think. Because as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. If the devil can control the way you think, he can control the way you live, plain and simple. He knows it, and God knows it, and that's why Paul, and Paul knew it, of course. That's why Paul says, now that you're saved, you got to reprogram the way you think. You're never going to walk in the Spirit and live for God if you're, if you're thinking like, you used to think. And how am I going to change the way I think? By renewing my mind by studying and reading the Word of God. In fact, that's exactly what Peter said. He was even more precise uh, than Paul when he commanded us in 1 Peter 2, verses 1 and 2. He said, Therefore lay aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. As newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. So all of these apostles, uh, in all of their epistles, uh, and the Lord Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry, is all about getting us to start focusing, now that we're saved, to get us to focus on what God has said. As you read God's word, you're, you're reading God's thoughts, his heart, 
And that gets transferred into your heart and mind. And then, of course, by the Spirit's power, He gives us the grace to live that way if we want to. You can be a carnal Christian. There's a lot of Christians who, uh, I'm, I'm saved, that's all I want. How sad. Because when you stand before the Lord someday and you have nothing to show for the time you spend on the earth, you have nothing to lay at His feet in the way of, of works that you did for His glory, it's going to matter then. But guys, the new life, and that's, again, what Peter's talking about. He said, look, now that you're born again, okay, when you, when you accepted the gospel, you were born of the Spirit, now you're a new creation. And the idea is you must begin to walk in that newness of life. It's interesting. It doesn't happen automatically. Because if it did, none of the apostles would, or the writers of the New Testament would admonish us, even command us. Peter's going to command us before he's done. Uh, that we must walk in newness of life. It doesn't happen automatically. And the big reason why it doesn't happen automatically is because there's a war going on. But the idea is if you want to have victory, if you want to uh, you know, walk in the Spirit and live a, the kind of life that pleases God, you've got to be in the Word. There's no two ways around it. Uh, the psalmist said in Psalm 119, uh, verses 9 and 11, of course, Psalm, psalm 119 is all about the Word of God. Uh, it's a tremendous psalm. But he said, how can a young man cleanse his way? How can a young man or woman walk in purity? By taking heed according to your word. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Well, if the word is going to help you to walk and all and live for God, it's got to be in your heart. Got to put it there. Now, guys, with all that in mind, we pick up our study in 1 Peter 2 with verse 11. He said, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. Let me stop there. As Christians, we were once earth dwellers, earth dwellers, but now we are sojourners and pilgrims. Guys, a sojourner is someone that is living in a foreign country while being the citizen of another country. Paul wrote in Philippians 3, verse 20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for the Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. The Greek word for sojourner is a word that literally means alongside the house. Alongside the house. One author said, and I quote, the word came to denote any person who lives in a country not his own and is therefore a foreigner. The term fits Christians who do not belong to this world system but live alongside those who do, end quote. The word pilgrim translates a Greek word that, that applies to a person who is traveling through a country, but who has settled down briefly to live among the native population. Now you say, well, wait a minute, that's what the other word meant. Right. Those two Greek words are synonyms of each other. And as such, you say, well, why did Peter use different Greek words that really mean the same thing? Because he was emphasizing one point. He wasn't using two different words to uh, define two different ideas. He wanted to hammer this home in such a way that he uses two Greek words, basically the same, to drive home this one point. Very important point. That we, as Christians, live in the world, but we are not of the world. We are not to settle down and get comfortable. This is not our home. That's why the Bible says that we are to walk in the Spirit which implies you don't rest. It, it applies constant movement, right? Nowhere do you find in the Bible that says that, you know, after you're saved, you can lay down in some nice prairie somewhere and just, you know, smell the flowers and, and go to sleep. The idea is we have to keep walking. If you're not walking forward, I guarantee you, you will start sliding backward. None of us lives a static Christian life. If you're not moving forward a daily walk, you will start sliding backward. So a lot of Christians who think, well, I'm holding my own. I know I'm not going to church very much anymore. I'm not really in the Word like I used to be, but I'm holding my own. No, you're not. You're drifting. And you know what? It's so subtle you don't even realize you're drifting. That's how it works, all right? Until one day you wake up and you go, where am I? How did I get this far away from the Lord? What well, didn't happen all at once. It was a slow, gradual drifting away. And we have to be on guard against that. We have to keep reminding ourselves that we are pilgrims, strangers, foreigners living in a land that is no longer our, own, our home land. 
We're on our way to heaven. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Of course, Hebrews 11 is the great hall of faith chapter, chronicling some of the great examples of faith in the Bible. And in verse 13, he kind of, after he's talked about several people that were just examples of faith, he said in verse 13, all these people died still believing. I'm going to read it to you out of the NLT. All these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised. See, God promised Abraham a homeland, uh, that someday the land of Canaan would be his descendants forever. Um, he never saw it. Uh, and many of the people that God made the promise who never saw the Messiah, never saw the fulfillment, all right? But they lived in faith. But they saw it from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on the earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had longed for a country they came from, they could have gone back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them, the new Jerusalem. So guys, once again, as Christians, we are living on the earth, but we are not a part of the earth. And I'm thinking of the world system, fallen world system. We live in this world, but we're not a part of the world. We have been called by the Lord to reach the people of this world, but not to be entangled with the cares of this life or this world. And so um, this is not our home. We're only passing through on our way to our real home in heaven. Now, guys, this is in contrast to another group. This group, by far, vastly exceeds the pilgrims and strangers that make up the body of Christ or the people of God throughout the centuries. But in contrast to us as God's people, there's another group who the Bible refers to as the earth dwellers. The earth dwellers. An earth dweller is someone who is a citizen of earth. A person who not only lives on the earth, I mean, we all do, but this is a person who sees the earth as their true home, who lives for the earth by laying up for themselves treasures on the earth. I'll read you three passages, and you could dig into I think 11 times, I believe, in Revelation. Uh, it speaks of the earth dwellers. I'll just give you three passages. Revelation 3, verse 10. God is speaking now to the faithful church of Philadelphia. So he's talking to his people. He said, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world, listen, to test those who dwell on the earth. And I believe that's a promise God gave to the faithful church of Philadelphia and all faithful Christians, that before his judgment is poured out upon the earth dwellers, he's going to take his people off the earth. We are going to be raptured before his judgment falls. Revelation 6, verse 10, And they cried with a loud voice. These are the martyrs who came out of the great tribulation period. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So these martyrs, these saints, were put to death. Uh, they lived in the, during the tribulation period, and they were put to death by the Antichrist and his followers. And now they're crying out for justice. Uh, by the way, this is one of the reasons I know the church isn't going through the tribulation period. This is just a small way. Because we are called to forgive our enemies. We are called to pray for our enemies. Here these people are crying out for justice. They want vengeance. These are tribulation saints, not the church of Jesus Christ. All right. Uh, you can get Revelation study looking if you want to dig into that a little more. And then finally, Revelation 13.8. And there's others, many others. It says, all who dwell on the earth. And these, this is more than a, a designation of where they live. This is, this is the character of their heart. They, yeah, they live on the earth. We all do. But these are people who are of the earth. Are of the earth. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, the Antichrist, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And so, guys, it's upon the earth dwellers that God's wrath is poured out as I said, during the Great Tribulation period. And look, if you're, you know, and I'm speaking in general terms, if a person is not a citizen of heaven, in other words, if they're not saved, then they are automatically considered an earth dweller, someone who is lost and under the wrath of God. The, the judgment of God abides upon them, all right? The good news is, well, the good news is that 
all, everyone in this room at one time was an earth dweller. We were all earth dwellers at one time. But when we, when we received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we were no longer earth dwellers. We became sojourners and pilgrims, the people of God, and now we are just passing through this life on our way to our heavenly home. But listen, the core idea behind being a citizen of heaven, and this is important, and again, it gets into everything Peter is going to be talking about, all right? The core idea behind being a citizen of heaven is that you relinquish control of your life on the earth right now to Jesus as your king. You want to be a citizen of heaven. Well, that's where the king reigns. And if you want to be a citizen of that kingdom, you have to bow the knee to the king, which means right now, before you die, of course, Bible says someday every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. But those that wait until after they die and stand before the Lord on the day of judgment and they confess he's Lord, it's too late. Okay? Today is the day of salvation. Today is the time when people need to uh, bow the knee to Christ, confess their sins, and receive him as their king, and then submit to his will for their life in every area. So, again, Jesus must be Lord of all. If we're going to be a member of his kingdom, uh, you know, the idea is that you're bowing to him, that you're uh, receiving him as your king, which means right now on the earth, whatever he tells you to do, you do. Uh, you can't say like Peter, not so, Lord. You can't say not so to your Lord. The word Lord is a designation of somebody who is your master, who controls your life. Jesus Christ is our master. He controls our life. Now, I can't say that every time he says for us to do something, we automatically obey. I know I, I haven't. But that's the idea, that Jesus Christ, when he commands us to do something, go somewhere, talk to somebody, when we do it, he's able to really bless us and use us. Now, if he's put it on your heart to go talk to that person that you work with, and you're afraid, you say, Lord, I can't do that. They're, they're mean. I, I can't do it. He'll raise up Peter. Peter will go. Or somebody, you know, somebody that has that, you know, that very outgoing personality. But you'll lose a reward, a blessing. So much better to say, Lord, whatever, you know, whatever my Lord says to a servant, that I will do. Warren Worsby said, and I quote, the central section of Peter's letter. 1 Peter 2, verses 11 through chapter 3, verse 12. That's a big chunk of this epistle. Most of it, okay? The central section of Peter's letter, okay, again, from uh, chapter 2, verse 11 to chapter 3, verse 12, emphasizes submission in the life of a believer. This is certainly not a popular topic in this day of lawlessness and the quest for personal fulfillment, quote-unquote, but it is an important one. Peter applied the theme of submission to the life of a believer as a citizen, chapter 2, verses 11 to 17, a worker, chapter 2, verses 18 to 25, a marriage partner, chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, and a member of the Christian assembly, chapter 3, verses 8 to 12. And so, guys, this becomes then the bulk of Peter's first letter to Christians everywhere. And uh, it's why we have spent so much time tonight just kind of um, introducing this section. You have to see it in the light of, well, who are we in Christ? Um, why should we live for the Lord? Well, I think it's pretty obvious. Most of us know that. But, you know, what does it mean? It's a life of submission. A lot of Christians, or a lot of people, I don't know if they're really saved, a lot of people come to Christ with the idea that God now exists to make them happy, to bless them every at every turn. But they don't really want to take up a cross. In fact, they're in churches that don't really teach that. Um, it's not really on the, the teaching menu. Because it's all about tickling ears and getting people to, uh, to tell people what they want to hear so they keep coming to church and giving money to the preacher or to the church. I just read how that Kenneth Copeland uh, is worth $100 million. I just saw a picture of him standing in front of his new $36 million jet. Why does he need a jet, a personal jet? Because he said that a regular airplane, a regular airliner, uh, is just a tube filled with demons. And he doesn't want to ride with demons. So he needs his own private jet. He is worth in excess of $100 million. 
that's a far cry from, you know, it says of, in Hebrews of these great men and women of faith, um, they wandered in caves, dressed in uh, the rough burlap type of clothing. They were beaten. They were sawn in two. Uh, you, know, in, in, you know, they were persecuted, of whom the world was not worthy. It's just so sad to see, you know, these charlatans, really, masquerading as men of God. And what's really sad is so many people believe them to be men of God and will give them, you know, I mean, how many little old ladies on a fixed income give their last $10 from their Social Security check to some TV preacher because she believes he's a man of God? I wouldn't want to stand in his shoes on the Day of Judgment, that's for sure. But this is why we have spent so much time in this introduction of this section. Very important section. Let's go back and read verse 11 again. Peter said, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Let me read it to you out of the uh, Amplified. Beloved, I implore you as aliens and strangers and exiles in this world to abstain from the sensual urges, the evil desires, the passions of the flesh, your lower nature that wage war against the soul. He's talking about spiritual warfare. Spiritual war, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Paul really gets into this in Galatians 5. So why don't you turn there. Let's see what Paul had to say on this subject. Of course, this is familiar territory to most of you. But if we're going to really understand what Peter is getting at, we need to bring Paul in here now because he really amplifies this. And Paul said in Galatians 5.16, I say then, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, guys, the word translated flesh in verse 16 can mean the physical body. Uh, it's used that way a lot in the New Testament, but the vast majority of the time that you see the word flesh, or the flesh primarily, it refers to our fallen nature. Again, that, that which we were born with, that part of us that we inherited from Adam. When he fell in the garden, him and Eve, all their descendants were born after them fallen sinners with a sin nature. Uh, the sin nature is that part of us that is corrupted, that part of us that wants to be selfish and self-focused and to do whatever we can to gratify our bodily appetites. That's the fallen nature. That's what we walked in before we got saved. That's all we knew. Based, of course, with some people is worse than others. Uh, some people really try to gratify the flesh. Others try to keep it in check. But you know, without the power of the Spirit, you, know, you can't overcome it. It's just there. It's just a part of who you are, right? I believe what Paul, of course, is talking about here when he says, you know, uh, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. He's talking about our fallen nature. And guys, it's our flesh or our fallen nature that wants to control our mind and our body and make them obey the desires of our fallen nature instead of doing what God wants. That's what it's all about. The fallen nature wants to control our thinking, because as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. That way the fallen nature, of course, Satan is pushing the buttons. The fallen nature can control the, the way we live. And of course, the goal is to do exactly opposite what God wants. Now, when a person surrenders their life to Jesus, as I said, they're born again. Or the Greek in John 3, verse 3, could be translated, is born from above. This is a spiritual birth, of course, which connects us to God and enables us to have fellowship or communion with God. We're able to worship. And before we got saved, we were two-dimensional creatures. We were fallen. So we had a body and a soul. The soul was our consciousness. Our spirit was dead. It died in the Garden of Eden, right? When we accepted Christ, the spirit was made alive. We were born again. And now we connect with God spirit to spirit for fellowship, for worship, and so on. But also, the moment you gave your heart to Christ and were born of the spirit, what happened was the spirit of God did a little heart surgery on you and he transplanted the heart of god into your heart my heart now we have god's desires you know the things that pleases him now please us uh, or they should uh, but we have god's heart god's desires right and god is a heart for people and so maybe we were very selfish before we got saved but all of a sudden now that we're christians we have this heart to help people to give to missions to see people saved that kind of thing the problem is, once we got saved and we got a new nature, the nature of God, well, the old nature doesn't go away. It hangs around. 
And uh, that's where the war begins. A war now begins. Galatians 5.17, For the flesh lusts, that could be translated wars, for the flesh wars against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. So we want to do the right thing as Christians. We often, not always do we do it, though. All right? Why? Because we have this other thing working inside of us, this fallen nature that's still trying to get us under its control. Many Christians, and I've had this happen over the years, um, usually with young believers, okay? And they get saved, and they've got all this, these struggles going on, all right, inside. And they come to me, and they say, well, pastor, this is a proof that I'm not even saved. And I said, quite the contrary, all right, quite the contrary. Just the opposite is true. I think the words of Martin Luther would be, would be helpful here. He said, and I quote, dead men don't struggle. When you were dead in trespasses and sins, you didn't fight the flesh. You just gave into it. Paul said in Ephesians 2, we were like dead fish floating down the stream of life. I mean, a dead fish doesn't fight the current. It just floats with the, goes with the current of the world, right? Well, we were dead fish just floating with the current of the world. Who controlled the current of the world? The devil. And we just were swept along. But once you became a Christian now, you have the Spirit of God inside you, and now you turn around and you want to fight against the world. You want to, uh, you want to swim contrary to the, to the current. It, of course, there's a lot of struggles that go along with it. This is proof, though, that you are, in fact, a child of God. Now, God has promised us victory over our fallen nature, but it's a conditional promise. A conditional promise. A conditional promise means that we must do something if the promise is going to become a reality in our lives. What must we do? Well, Paul tells us in verse 16 of Galatians 5, we are to walk in the Spirit. And then, he said, conditional promise, and then we won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. The word walk is the Greek word peripateo. Peripateo, and is in the present imperative. What does that mean? Anything in Greek in the present tense means an ongoing thing, a continuous action. Uh, an imperative is a command. So Paul is commanding us that we keep on walking in the Spirit. Well, I walked in the Spirit last week on Thursday. Can I have a break now? No. We have to continually walk in the Spirit every single day. A good, strong offense will keep us from having to play defense. The idea is that, um, well, let me just say this, okay? We'll, we'll come back to it. Walk in the Spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? Okay, I, I understand what Paul is saying in Galatians, but I need to know, what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? Well, first of all, it means that the Holy Spirit lives in you, that you're saved. That's very, very basic, but we've got to start with the basics, okay? So walking in the Spirit, first of all, means that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, that you're saved. Second, it means to be surrendered and obedient to what the Spirit has revealed in His Word as to the will of God for your life. This is where a lot of Christians kind of blow it. This is why we are so committed to verse-by-verse -verse teaching, by the way. Because it's too easy, and this happens all the time, for Christians to open up their Bibles and want to do a quick devotional, and they'll just look at the middle of a passage and pull out a few ideas, and the way they apply them is often wrong. Why? Because they've taken it out of its context. If you teach verse-by-verse, -verse, or if you make sure you study the Word of God carefully that you look at to, to make sure that you're reading something in its context you're not going to be misled we have to do that okay we have to see things in the context and a lot of times today christians don't really um study the bible from beginning to end or one you know started with uh, ephesians 1 verse 1 go all the way to the end um, they will jump around uh, read a little bit out of this book jump over here read a couple verses here that is a very bad practice to get into all right very bad practice to get into first of all what happens is you, you only focus on the verses you like as time goes on you find yourself get your little pet verses all right you can't begin to look at the word of god as like a, a smorgasbord you know a biblical sizzler salad bar okay and uh you know you, we all love salad bars why because we get to pick and choose whatever we want i can i can choose a lot of this and i don't have to eat any of that Whatever it is, I don't like, right? That's why we love salad bars. Sizzler's a, got a good one. I've been there many times. It's very good, all right? But what's good for a physical salad bar is terrible for the Word of God. 
Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Paul said, I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. You, you cannot go to the Bible and say, well, I don't like this. I'm going to reject that. I like this over here. I like these verses about God loving me and blessing me. I don't want this cross stuff. That, that, no, that's, that's no good. And what happens is Christians are very worldly today and defeated because they're not really taking the whole word of God and uh, asking God to give them the grace to live all of what he has said. Okay. And third, it means, walking in the Spirit, it means to be open and sensitive to the influence and leading of the Holy Spirit in your daily walk, your daily life. If we could cultivate this a little more, I think we would all benefit. That when you walk out the door in the morning, put it in your mind that you're on a mission from God. Oh, but I'm just going to work. Well, that's a mission. That's part of the mission. But during the time at work or at lunchtime, or if you have to run in and pick up a gallon of milk before you go home, be sensitive to the Spirit's leading that he might want you to talk to somebody or, you know, go somewhere and do something. This is what it means to walk in the Spirit, okay? That you're saved, that you're surrendered and obedient to all God has said in His Word, and that you live with a kind of an openness and a sensitivity to where the Spirit might want to lead you or direct you. Guys, when a Christian obeys this command, Paul promises, listen, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that you will not, now this is a double negative in the Greek, he's saying that you absolutely will not, no way, gratify or fulfill the desires of your fallen nature. If you do these things, he is making a promise in the Spirit that God will give you everything you need to walk in the Spirit, to be victorious, to throw off the old life of the flesh and put on the new man in Christ, to live that holy life that he desires us to live and so on. It's all about us. Again, you have to really make it a point to, you know, this is something I'm, I'm aiming for, something I'm purposing to do. Daniel purpose in his heart he wouldn't defile himself with the king's food you know you're not going to walk with god by accident you got to walk on purpose is the idea okay now paul said in romans 6 even that this kind of day-by-day -day walking in the spirit will render the fallen nature inoperative the greek word is ketargeo which means to short circuit to render inoperative to break the power of the flesh life over us in other words the fallen nature wants to dominate it's very strong I mean, we're living in a world where everything has been designed by the devil to stimulate our fallen nature, to disobey God and obey what the flesh wants to do. Didn't John say this in his first epistle? All that is in the world is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. All this is of the devil, it's not of the Father. But see, we have to, we have to really purpose to keep our eyes on God, to, to keep filling our mind with the Word of God so that we don't get brainwashed into thinking something is okay when God said it's not. But if you will walk in the Spirit, Paul said in Romans 6, verse 6, the fallen nature will be rendered inoperative, its power over our life will be broken, and God will give you grace to walk fully in the Spirit. Now look, the legalist has a form of spiritual dyslexia when they read Galatians 5, 16. They read it this way. You ready? Don't fulfill the lust of the flesh, and you shall walk in the Spirit. But that's not what Paul said, is it? That's backward. The legalist is always trying to do battle against the flesh. We have said it many times. Let me say it again. Especially if we come into a new year. You know, I think somebody asked me, what is your uh, New Year's resolution for this year? Unbeliever. I said, I don't make resolutions. Because a resolution is putting confidence in my own strength, confidence in my flesh to do things. And therefore, it's a self-defeating proposition because... As a Christian, I want to have victory over the flesh, but I can't have victory over the flesh using the flesh. I can't, through raw will and determination, my own strength, say, I'm going to have victory in the Spirit this year. I'm going to walk with God. It's not going to happen. You can't use the flesh to conquer the flesh. That's why I don't make New Year's resolutions. What I want to do is just draw close to God. I just want to draw close to God. Bible says, if you draw close to Him, He'll do what? He'll draw close to you. And that's what I want. Lord, I need for you to live your life through me. Now give me the grace because you know, he works in, us both, works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. I don't even feel like reading my Bible in the morning. Well, pray about that. Lord, I need you to work in me to will and to do. of your. Nothing wrong with that prayer. That just shows total dependence on God. 
right? Total depends on God. But God love them. We have a lot of legalistic Christians in the body of Christ. And they put so much emphasis on their own strength in walking with God. And uh, Paul is basically saying, look, that's not how you have victory. Don't fight the flesh. Feed the spirit. Draw close to God. He'll draw close to you, and he will begin to, as Paul said, the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. I don't, I don't live this life in my own strength. Jesus lives his life through me. And that's the idea. Jesus is already victorious. He's already won the victory. He lives inside of me. I mean, I can have complete victory if I just get out of the way. If I stop trying to, you know, do it, I'm trying to please God. Lord, look at me. I'm really trying hard for you. God says, that's the problem. You're, you're trying hard in the flesh to do what I can only do in the spirit. Just draw close to me, you know? Jesus said, you know, the branch, when it's attached to the tree, bears fruit naturally. Whenever we just keep drawing close to Jesus, stay in close communion with him, you will find that all the fruit of the Spirit will begin to grow. You won't have to grunt. You don't walk by an apple tree and hear a faint grunting and straining and the tree trying to produce apples. It just happens naturally. The same is true when you are in fellowship with the Lord the Spirit of God is flowing through you, and it's going to be, He's going to be bearing fruit, fruit of the Spirit. And part of that fruit of the Spirit is self-control, the control of self, and a lot of other wonderful things that only He can produce in our lives. So don't fight the flesh. You want to walk in victory. You want, you want to put on the new man and live a holy life for God, and, and just don't fight the flesh, feed the Spirit. Draw close to God through His Word and prayer, and the flesh won't be an issue. Now, the best way to dispel darkness, you walk into a dark room. What's the best way to get rid of the darkness? Just flip the switch, turn on the light. Same is true in the spirit. You want to drive the devil from your life, trying to push those buttons of your old nature to get you to live contrary to what God wants? Just put on the light. Where's the light? You got the light in your lap. Your word is a lamp under my feet, a light under my path. Uh, Jesus is the light of the world. He lives inside of us. Have fellowship with him. Again, the best defense is a good, strong offense. Now, look, I think all of us understand the frustration that comes from constant spiritual warfare. i got to tell you, it's getting worse. Not only is it bad outside the church, but the devil has infiltrated the church. And I, I've never known a time when the body of Christ is so fractured, so you know, opposed to each other in some ways. I mean, you know, Christians are, are fighting with each other. They're, they're talking against each other. Uh, a lot of division and carnality. You know, and after a while, it's like, Lord, I, I don't know if I want to go do this anymore. A lot of pastors have actually gotten out of the ministry because they just couldn't deal with the incessant fighting and bickering and, and, and division and church splits. It's like, Lord, I don't need this anymore. It's hard to constantly deal with spiritual warfare. Most of it, though, most of it does not come from without. It comes from within. Understand that. The problem is, guys, after we get saved, and we've talked about this, we uh, have a new spirit and a redeemed soul. Listen, living in an unredeemed body. And that leads to a lot of frustration. That's why Paul said in Romans 8.23, We who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. He's talking about the rapture. He's talking about the day when we get a new body. We've got a new spirit, was dead, now it's alive. That's what it means to be born of the spirit. We have a, uh, a new consciousness in a sense. We are now uh, conscious of God. We are now living in the spirit. We have a new life in an old container. That's the problem. Someday we're going to get a new container a new body at the time of the rapture. And we're all waiting for that day. John puts it this way. In fact, why don't you turn to 1 John 3. 1 John 3, verse 2. Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, at the time of the rapture, when we see him face to face, we shall be made like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. In other words, until the day when Jesus comes, 
when the angel shouts, the trumpet sounds, and the Lord says, come up here, and we are raptured into his presence. On the way up, we're going to receive our new glorified body. It's going to be pretty quick, okay? We'll receive our new glorified body, and uh, that's going to be a, that's the day we're all waiting for. Until that time, we are commanded in Scripture to keep fighting the good fight of faith. And a big part of it, guys, listen, a big part of fighting the spiritual war is going to be against our fallen nature. Spiritual warfare takes on many different forms, but most of it happens within, okay, within. So much spiritual warfare is fought within. D.L. Moody said, I have more trouble with D.L. Moody than with any man I know. I've often thought that. My biggest enemy is the guy I shave in the morning. Uh, that's just the way it is, okay? But Paul said in Galatians 5.18, If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Guys, only those controlled by their fallen nature need laws to uh, restrain their evil desires and actions. See, if you don't have the Holy Spirit within you, resisting and giving you grace to not give into the flesh, then you need external laws to keep evil in people's hearts in check. The idea is, though, those are inferior. As Paul pointed out, uh, external laws written on tablets of stone were very ineffective. Why? Because if a person doesn't care about consequences... Well, they don't care about outward laws. You have people that absolutely don't care about consequences. They don't care if you put them in jail the rest of their life. They are bound and determined to do evil. But when you get saved, the Spirit of God comes inside and writes his, God's laws on your heart. And now we obey from the heart. It's a whole different thing. But again, only those who are fallen sinners need laws to restrain their evil desires and actions. Let me just read you out of 1 Timothy 1, where Paul says, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person. Because righteous people don't need external laws. We have God's laws. In our, we're not gonna, we don't want to steal or, or lie or commit adultery, right? We have God's laws in our heart. We want to obey God from the heart. People that don't know the Lord, they need ex external laws, even though they're inferior. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. And he goes on. People need, who don't know the Lord, they need loss. But look at our society, how it's breaking down because people are lawless. And uh, Jesus said that the closer we got to his return, lawlessness would abound. The love of many would grow cold. We would see people that wouldn't care. And so they would do all kinds of horrible things. You can read 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 5. But turn back to Galatians for a moment. I want to pick it up in verse uh, Galatians 5, verse 19. Paul says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I want you to notice, guys, how Paul transitions from the lust of the flesh in verse 16 to the works of the flesh in verse 19. God has given the human body legitimate drives for the survival of mankind and the perpetuation of the human race. They are in descending order of intensity. You ready? The air drive, the water drive, the sleep drive, the food drive, and the sex drive. Now some put that last one at the top of the list. They'd rather have sex than breathe, but that's uh, that's something different, okay? But listen, these are legitimate bodily needs, drives, that God has built into the human body to keep us alive, right? And when kept under the control of the Holy Spirit, they are normal, legitimate, and beneficial. However, when these physical drives are allowed to be controlled by man's sinful fallen nature, they become perverted and destructive, what the Bible calls the lusts of the flesh, Thirst becomes drunkenness, hunger becomes gluttony, sleep becomes laziness, and sex becomes immorality, just to name a few. 
And guys, when these lusts are given into and acted upon, they become what the Bible calls the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh. And notice that Paul calls these the works of the flesh, not the demons of drunkenness or gluttony or immorality, etc. I say that because you have people that are trying, and you have these deliverance ministries, and they're trying to exercise or cast out the demon of immorality or the demon of, you know, chocolate cake or, I don't know, uh, demon of gluttony and so on. Let me say this to you. You can't cast out or be delivered from your flesh, your fallen nature. It's going to be with you until you receive your new glorified body. It's absolutely unbiblical for people to think that you can go to a pastor and have some elders lay their hands on you and they're going to cast out the things that Paul calls the works of the flesh uh, that are tied to your fallen. You can't be exercised of your fallen nature. And let me just say this before we move on. The flesh, again, not the physical body, but the fallen nature, it can't be reasoned with or negotiated with. It can't be rehabilitated or reformed. The Bible has only one command when it comes to the flesh, and that is crucify it. Crucify it. The reason is because the flesh is never satisfied no matter how much you give it. Therefore, don't give it anything. Don't feed it, all right? Don't make a treaty with it. Some people have made a treaty with their flesh. A young guy years ago came to my pastor. Pastor Joe was talking about this in a teaching he did. A young guy came to him and said, um, I've, been re- uh, I've been wrestling with homosexuality for years. Uh, when I got saved, uh, God gave me victory over a lot of things, but this one hasn't, you know, I haven't had victory over this. He said, so I just have come to believe God made me this way, and I'm just going to give in to it. I mean, I have victory in all these other areas. Basically, surely God gives me one or two that I can just live with. That's called making a treaty with your flesh. God told the children of Israel when they entered into the land, they were not to make a treaty with with the people of the land. The people of the land, they represented in a way, a spiritual sense, the flesh. Okay, They were completely given over to uh, the devil, uh, all kinds of demonic practices, everything God had forbidden they were doing, child sacrifice, all kinds of things. And God said, if you make a treaty with these people, if you don't drive them out early like I've commanded you, but you, you make a treaty with them, I won't drive them out. I'll leave them there and they'll become a snare. And they will eventually trip you up. And that's exactly what happened. Israel got in there and they started fighting the battles of the Lord. They started having victory. But it was seven years they were fighting these battles in Canaan. And they got tired. And they wanted to stop fighting. They wanted to settle down and begin to enjoy the houses they didn't build and the wells they didn't dig and the vineyards they didn't plant. All the things that they drove the Canaanites out they took from the Canaanites, they wanted to now relax, just enjoy themselves. And so they didn't drive out all the inhabitants of the land. And what happened was exactly what God said. Then these little pockets of enemy resistance began to grow. These people infected God's people who got into the same idolatry and all. And finally, God had to judge his own people. The moral of the story is we never make a treaty with the flesh. You can't ever say to God, well, Lord, um, I've, I've had, I got victory over most of it. Certainly, you know, you don't mind if I drink a little bit or smoke or do whatever else you've said not to do. And of course, God says, yes, I do care. Because if you leave the flesh unchallenged and just let it coexist with you, it will rise up and begin to take territory back that you've conquered uh, in my spirit. And eventually you begin to see some of the old attitudes coming back to slide backwards into the world i've seen it happen many times again walk in the spirit keep moving forward you won't slide backward the flesh cannot be reformed rehabilitated just crucify it that's the only command god has given us with the flesh verse uh, galatians 5 24 those who are christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires now back in first peter 2 And we spent a lot of time tonight basically introducing the next section of Peter's epistle. But let me read verse 11 and then 12, where Peter said, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct. See, it's all about putting off the old and putting on the new. 
having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, just a term for unsaved people, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Live honorably among unbelievers, that when they speak evil of you as evildoers, they're convinced you're evil, okay? You're going to put to silence their accusations by living a good life as God has commanded. I thought this was interesting. Author and historian William Barclay said, and I quote, Christians were falsely accused, now this is going back in Peter's time, Christians were falsely accused of great crimes in the early church. Pagan said that at communion, Christians ate the flesh and drank the blood of a baby in a cannibalistic ritual. They said that Christian agape feasts were wild orgies. They said that Christians were antisocial because they did not participate in society's immoral entertainment. They said that Christians were atheists because they did not worship idols. Now, these were all lies, but this is what the world around the church was saying about them. But over time, Barclay said, it was clear that Christians were not immoral people, and it was shown by their lives. The striking fact of history is that by their lives, the Christians actually did defeat the slanderers uh, of the heathen. In the uh, early part of the third century, Celsus made the most famous and most systematic attack of all upon the Christians in which he accused them of ignorance and foolishness and superstition of all kinds of things, but never of immorality, end quote. So look, your enemies are going to say all kinds of things about you because they don't want to acknowledge your right because then they'd have to make some changes. Just better to write you off as a lunatic, a Bible thumper, a bigot, whatever. But you just let your light shine. Just keep living for Jesus. And eventually they're going to have to acknowledge, you know what? This person's a pretty good person. I mean, they, they're, they're kind, they're caring, and so on. Now, guys, listen, and we're just about done. What did Peter mean when he said that we must live honorable lives among the unsaved so that they, by our good works which they observe will glorify God in the day of visitation. What is this day of visitation that Peter is referring to? Well, he could have two things in mind. The day of visitation could be a reference to the day God visits the people of this earth in judgment. That's one way it could be used. Isaiah 10, verse 3, God said, What will you do in the day of visitation and in the desolation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your glory? In other words, God is talking to his people that judgment is coming. He's going to visit them in judgment. And then what are you going to do? You're going to turn to your idols for help? They're not going to help you. Again, William McDonald said, The thought is that unsaved people will be compelled to glorify God in the day of judgment. They will have no excuse, for they not only heard the gospel, they saw it in the lives of their Christian relatives, friends, and neighbors. God will then be vindicated through the blameless conduct of his children. So that's one interpretation. I personally uh, hold to the second, and that is that Peter has in mind God's mercy upon the lost um, and how he visits them to save them. You remember in Acts 15, you have to turn there, they're uh, talking at the uh, Jerusalem council, and um, I forgot who it was. It might have been James, the leader of the church. Uh, he said, Simon, Peter, has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. You see how it could be used in the sense of visiting someone to, you know, to save them. Uh, the, uh, one author said the idea is that Gentiles might be persuaded to become Christians by seeing the lives of other Christians and that they would glorify God when they meet him instead of cowering before him in, on the day of judgment. Guys, again, the whole idea that Peter is bringing up here is that it's so important that now that we are saved, that we make a conscious decision and effort. I mean, it's all God's power, but God will not, you know, we have to want to uh, live a, a new life. We have to make steps to live that new life, come to church, read the Bible, and so on. The purpose, though, is that we live a new life that our light might shine and people might get saved, that God will be glorified. And God is visiting people in the sense that he's, he's making himself known to people, bringing conviction and so on. 
And he's using us. As people look at us and they study our life and we're really walking in the Spirit, uh, and they know we're Christians, they're looking at us to see what they, do we really believe what we say we believe? Are we living it out? And if we are living it out, uh, it's a great testimony. And then when God comes in with conviction, well, because they've already seen him working in the life of you or me, they'll bring God glory because they'll get saved themselves. So a very important section, guys. Next week, we'll continue looking at what Peter says putting on the new man looks like in the lives of God's people. He gets into government. He gets into marriage. These are very important topics. We'll look at them. And, um, of course, as we study these things that God has said, uh, we are to submit ourselves to. Again, it's all about submission. By God's grace, may we then apply all that he has said because that's what it means to... Uh, be a child of God and walk in the Spirit. So we'll study that starting next week. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your grace, Lord. We thank you that you've taken us out of darkness into your marvelous light, that we were once children of darkness, children of the night, but now we're children of God and of the light. Give us grace to walk as children of light. And Lord, we pray that you would give us grace to take what Peter is saying to heart. I mean, uh, we've spent a lot of time on just a couple of verses because they're introductory they're important. They lay the groundwork, Lord, uh, Lord for the, uh, what's coming in this epistle, things that you've written for our learning. So give us grace, Lord, that we'd be open to um, wanting to be all that you want us to be. Of course, we need your grace and strength for that. But um, work in us, Lord, to will and to do of your good pleasure in all things. For we ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.